Hi, my name is Kirk Hamilton, your host of the Staying Healthy Today Show. This is a show where we're bringing you key experts in the fields of nutrition, prevention, integrative and lifestyle medicine, review the medical literature, and we review case studies. Today's show topic is fast food genocide, how processed foods kill our bodies and affect society's soul. Our guest today is Dr. Joel Furman, six-time New York Times bestselling author and family physician who has championed the nutritarian approach to health and healing and chronic disease prevention and reversal. And he came out with his uh, new book, Fast Food Genocide, How Processed Food is Killing Us and What We Can Do About It. And I've uh, known Joel, Dr. Furman, for a long time, and I've read all his books. And uh, this one had a different uh, edge to it. It wasn't just about nutrition. Uh, where'd you come up with the title, Fast Food Genocide? Well, you know, it's just... I think a lot of people understand that the more you eat processed foods and fast foods, that you have a higher rate of heart attack and stroke and cancer. I think that's in the back of their mind that these foods are dangerous. But there are other things going on because I don't think people know how they affect your intelligence and are linked to mental illness. And now one in five Americans are mentally ill. Severe depression, other disorders. Where well, used to be one in a hundred Americans a hundred years ago, by the way. And so we're, we're, and it's not just creating dementia and mental illness. It actually creates a loss of intelligence, a loss of creativity and inability to, to succeed and do well in school for people eating fast foods through their, you know, as they're being brought up. So certain populations are definitely more vulnerable and have more exposure to fast food, fast food and lack of access to produce, placing them at, at significantly increased risk. The other thing that people don't generally recognize is that when we're eating foods that are destructive to our brain cells, and, and also can be very addicting and hard to get off of, foods that are designed to create disease, they don't understand that it can destroy the, gene, the genes that we leave on to future generations so that when we damage our genes, we're not just causing our own health to cause a problem, but we're sparking a whole explosion of learning disabilities, autism, attention disorders, and childhood cancer, which is now the leading cause of death in children, is acute blastocytic leukemia linked to what the mother ate way before she even conceives the baby or gets pregnant. Um, and that the damage to the genes can be passed on to your grandchildren to two generations after that. So we're, we're seeing what's going on in America today with the explosion of the fast food industry since the 1960s and 1970s. We're seeing fast food and processed foods and junk food and candy and donuts and pizza and french fries becoming a larger percent of the total caloric load. And the far-reaching consequences, the destruction to our, to our bodies and to our future and to our children is, is largely unrecognized. And to top it off, the brain destruction doesn't end with mental illness. It also creates an addictive personality that is more likely to be driven to drug abuse and drug addiction. And right now we have the majority of people that are incarcerated in federal prisons today are there because of nonviolent drug-related offenses. And one of the largest factors predicting a person who, who, can't, who can't survive or can't function in life and relies on drugs and alcohol just to get by with this cloud of life, the biggest factor is candy consumption in childhood, fast food and processed food consumption in childhood. And that link is better than the link between lack of parents, poor parenting, abusive parents, poverty, social deprivation, or almost any other parameter you can look at. The link between what we ate as a child is the strongest link 
predicting a, a tragic outcome. And also, the opposite is true. In other words, eating good foods like fruits and vegetables, beans and nuts, is the, has the best association with longevity, brain function, intelligence, success in life, and happiness. So, you know, I just felt the, the, the title, Fast Food Genocide, is apropos because there's so much here that people have to, that's so important people learn about that they totally don't relate when somebody shoots up a school and kills people that it might have had something to do with the foods that person was fed the first 15 years of their life. And nobody's making this connection. Nobody's looking at the studies or discussing this in the, in the, in the present dialogue. You know? So I think it's very, very important to look at this too, to consider this information. So one of the things that sticks out in my mind, it's almost a, a book about social issues. I mean, I, I'm so used to you talking about, you know, reversing heart disease and diabetes and obesity and with the, with the nutritarian approach. And that's very important because those are the major illnesses that we look at. But there was such a, a, a jump into how we set up our society to fail and to suffer by connecting it with fast and processed foods. So was this... Do you think the fat, the processed foods was it, are are they intentionally put into our diet for a reason, or is it just or is it just pure business? Yeah, I mean, I mean, you could say there is like a link now between. Well, obviously, with the world wars, we had to have food for the battlefield for soldiers to be able to take food with them that wouldn't rot and it would stay fresh with, with instant calories and a large caloric load without having to carry a lot of weight with them, and those foods became cheap cheap. The cheapest foods, they are foods that have long shelf life that don't ever go bad, um, immediately become more economically favorable to companies that make them because they don't have to throw away the, the stuff that doesn't sell. And then, of course, I'm not saying there's collusion here, but I'm saying that food scientists design foods to make them attractive to people so people will want to eat more of them. And, they, and so, they've, so modern food science has developed modern foods that are addicting to the human personality and human biology where people can't stop eating them and it leads to just a, a very difficult time people have with getting off this attraction to these very dangerous foods and obviously what I'm saying right now is that these designer foods, these Franken foods kill more people, way more than cigarette smoking, way more than drug addiction and cocaine and heroin and, and all the other drugs that are way more, it's not even close Almost every, you know, we look look around. You say to, we give a speak to any population. Say, how many people here have been shot by a bullet, stabbed by a knife, or how are anybody in their family shot by a bullet or stabbed by? A, how many people here have a family member who has cancer, strokes, mental illness, you know, um, in a nursing home, demented, you know, and of course everybody raises their hand. The point is that we're we've destroyed the the viability that we've destroyed the opportunity that modern nutritional science affords us to have a great life with great health and, and emotional stability and happiness and, not, and lack of fear. And we've turned our, our, our and, and of course, we've turned the most vulnerable populations into, who has become so sick in these so-called food deserts that it leads to a tremendous amount of bigotry and racism that's structurally in our society, even in medical school. Because even in medical school, we're learning that black Americans have, you know, twice the risk of diabetes and 10 times the risk of early life stroke before age, before age 45 and, you know, double the risk of heart attack. And, you know, and, you know we're learning about as, as we're taught it, including educational achievement, economic achievement, longevity. We're taught about all these things. 
almost as if race plays a role, which is incorrect. The color of your skin has nothing to do with it. I traced in the book, not only did I trace the fact that the access to food, the distance, to the amount of produce consumed in any population, no matter what your genetic heritage or color of your skin, affects your outcomes, even crime, behavior, addiction, disease rates. And I even traced back to the Civil War showing that when, this, when the black Americans were newly um, freed as slaves after the Civil War, they achieved more longevity, better health than the white Caucasians in the South, more centenarians, and more educational parameter, reaching higher educational achievement when they were still had access to foods grown on the farm and vegetables in those days. It was only that we, we see this destruction, almost, uh, almost the deliberate destruction of a segment of our society that started with the Jim Crow laws and the backlash of the white supremacy movement, the driving the um, blacks out of the South into inner cities, that combined after the after um, lack of the processed food movement, and now we have all these people that are, you know, addicted to, f to fast food, and it's, it looks as if race has something to do with it, which it does not. Well, let me ask you this: so one of the things about fast food is is people say it's much cheaper, and you can there can be a dollar menu on a fast food place. So how does the meat, dairy, and sugar and maybe oil industries, how does, how does fast food get to be so cheap? Are, are those industries subsidized to allow fast food to be made cheaper? Or what do you think? Well, it, it is that, but it's mostly, you know, it is, there, there are subsidies, obviously, um, giving to cattle ranches and dairy farmers that keeps their, those foods artificially less expensive. They'd be almost prohibitively expensive if our government didn't subsidize, give, give farm subsidies to people, and, and all, even for corn crops that produce corn oil. And we're now consuming in America a thousand times as much oil as we did a hundred years ago. But of course, we're talking about subsidies for the type of corn that's fed to cattle to make that cheaper too, so cattle can be raised less expensively. So meat can be is an artificially government-supported lower price. But, um, but you know, um, that it's so it's such a complicated issue, but it's the main thing that when we make foods that, um, when we process the food, we make it so it has a, an unlimited shelf life, um, and it's you know, and it, that's the main factor. The main factor is it has no it, that um, it, you know it, it, when you put a produce out in the marketplace and fresh vegetables, these things have a limited shelf life. Whatever they don't sell and people don't consume right away, they have to throw away. So you're throwing away a large percentage of the produce that are going around to the supermarkets. Um, but that's, you know, but definitely it's, it's a very complicated issue. And there's a relationship here between the drug industry and their powerful effect on, their powerful effect on Washington and the medical industry um, and the, the interaction with the food industry and the amount of contributions and lobbying and, and the monetary, you know, spreading the money around so that the food industry supports the American Diabetic Association, the American Heart Association, the drug industry is affected by all the, there's so much money being pushed by these associations to control the dialogue from our government and what's, what appears in the media so that people think that food is not the cause of the damage and the drugs are the answer to what ails us. It's all very, um, so the Americans are totally confused. They think they get sick, predominantly due to old age and genetics. They don't realize they're the, they're the they cause themselves to get sick, and these sicknesses don't have to happen. But nobody has to have high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes, headaches, psoriasis. You know, these things are asthma. Nobody understands the whole idea of why these diseases develop in the, to begin with. 
because everything's geared towards a drug solution. And then the drug solution further permits the consumption of the processed foods and the fast foods, which caused the problem to begin with. So now you artificially lower the blood pressure, you artificially lower the cholesterol, you artificially lower the blood sugar. So people think they're okay now, so they can continue eating the foods that caused the problem to begin with. So, of course, they wind up, you know, demented in a nursing home or with a tragic life. So it's, it's, it's a very, um, it's, it's very confusing for people. I and mean, you combine that with the fact that the foods are so addicting and addictive substances have an effect to lessen your intelligence and they have an effect to make to create anxiety when they're not consumed and the brain comes with up with irrational often delusional rationalizations why it's right for them to continue to that that addiction that's hurting them so you could say well it's impossible for me to change or you know I needed to relieve my stress or it's not so bad, or, you know, everybody in moderation. You come up with all these reasons why it's okay to continue your addiction because of the addictive nature of substances is taking over control of your brain, and then your life becomes wrapped around your addiction. You can no longer be creative. You can't be caring, loving, giving, productive. You know, cre- in other words, it takes away your ability to really be a, the full person you can be because supplying your addiction, in this case we're talking about food addiction, becomes the major driving force affecting your behavior in life. And it, it really just, it's like, it's like living in a prison. Let me, um, I remember you did a study about eating a more nutrient-dense diet to help reduce food addiction and get your natural hunger back. You want to share um, a little bit about that study? Because that relates to this very much. The, Absolutely. Uh, you want to share a little bit about that? Yes, in 2010, I published a study in a nutritional journal called The Changing Perceptions of Hunger on a High-Nutrient-Density Diet. So as I'm explaining now how when we take in foods without nutrients, it causes a buildup of different types of waste products that cause addictive symptoms in the body. And the different types of waste products can be just thought of as the exogenous waste. The word exogenous means coming from the outside of us. that's in the, the, the waste products, the t- chemicals in the food. And then the endogenous waste the waste produced by the body itself through the normal product of metabolism and by not supplying sufficient phytochemicals and antioxidants to keep our waste levels down. So we build up these waste products in the body. And then while we're eating food, the body can't really repair and eliminate waste efficiently. The liver is mostly chocking away the calories away for future use, storing them. It's in the non-feeding state, in the catabolic phase, of the digestive cycle when you're not eating, when the liver and the body can most effectively remove, try, attempt to remove toxins and lower the effect of damage on its tissues. But when your diet is low in nutrients and your diet is inadequate and these toxins build up, it becomes very uncomfortable when you're no longer digesting food because the detox, the flood of toxins into the bloodstream for removal creates fatigue and headaches and anxiety and shakes and weakness and stomach cramping and it just, it's withdrawal. It's the same as a person trying to stop smoking cigarettes. When you stop imbibing in the damaging behavior, you feel worse, not better, but feeling worse is getting better. Having another smoke, taking your 10th cup of coffee, snorting the cocaine or eating the french fries or the donut, that's making you feel better. But feeling better is getting sicker. It's feeling worse that's getting better. You know, the inflammatory response is very closely intertwined with the process of repair. And, you know, we learned that in medical school, that inflammation has a right-directed function. 
even the asthmatic isn't recognizing that the inflammation in the lung has a right directed action to take internally created um, toxins and irritants and get them out of the body through to be able to breathe them out. Of course, in excess, it causes tightness and breathing difficulties, which the body doesn't really doesn't really want to happen. But it's still it's still it's still a detox reaction gone haywire or in excess, so to speak. The same thing with psoriasis and other diseases like that. But the point I'm making right now, and that you asked me, is that when we did this study on 750 people who improved the nutritional quality of their diet, we found that they had a lessened desire to overeat calories. Their, their hunger symptoms diminished, and eventually what replaced these shaky, the shakiness and fatigue and the ill feelings of withdrawal was replaced with a milder, throat and sensation that was accompanied by enhanced taste. In other words, they were put back in touch with their instinctual hunger, which directs you to the exact amount of calories you need to maintain your lean body mass. What I'm saying right now is that there are no obese squirrels in the woods and, you know, and 400-pound foxes. And, you know, in other words, animals instinctually know how much to eat. And we would, too. If we, lived in, if we lived on natural foods, we'd eat till we feel satisfied, and we'd wait till we got hungry again, because that's when, when we got true hunger, food would taste the best and be most enjoyable, and hunger would direct us to the right amount of calories and to a healthful life. But now, with, this, with the addictive nature of processed foods that flood the body with calories so rapidly, it creates an abnormal systems of hormones that get released, including excess dopamine stimulation in the brain when you, have, when you imbibe in the food, giving you an artificial high, and then when you try to stop eating the food, you feel that low, that's so uncomfortable, you have to eat again, which keeps Americans having to eat too frequently and too much just to feel okay. So now the whole population has to become overweight eating these, eating these type of foods. So what I'm saying is that, that we really have to understand, you know, addictive, uh, the science of addiction and nutrition. I was just speaking to a doctor who called himself an addictive addictionologist. And the point is, is that we're never going to solve people's issues with yo-yo dieting and when permanent weight loss and get them off the dieting merry-go-round and able to earn back their good health and enjoy eating food to the max because you want to enjoy eating the right food not having to eat the wrong food just to get by. So what I'm saying right now is when you, when you achieve excellent health, your smell improves, your taste improves, you, get a tra- you, you, get, you don't desire to overeat or eat all the time, and it's so much easier to control your appetite and eat the right amount and, eat, and also have a desire to eat the right type of foods. So there's a knowledge that knowledge is power. And when people learn the right information, it tremendously enhances their ability to stay eating healthfully and maintain their most favorable weight for the rest of their life. How do we, the addictive, some of the addictive compounds are the high, high amounts of sugar and fat in food. So how do we eat foods that give us the right types of fat and right types of sugar? Let's start with fat because um, it's a very controversial subject. You know, people put oil all over things. Some people say don't use any. Um, but we know f- we like fat. And people like that, you know, it, it drives them. How do you incorporate good fat into a healthy diet? Well, you know, that, that's one of the 
I mean, play on words with fast food genocide because I'm talking about, you know, fast food is foods that are digested and absorbed rapidly, contain synthetic ingredients, calorically dense, nutritionally barren. You know, we're talking about foods that flood the body with rapid calories. That's why it's called, so I'm saying fast food. Fast food enters the calories, enters the bloodstream really fast. And the speed of entry into the bloodstream from, let's say, oil, might come in at 50 calories a minute. Within four minutes, you absorb 200 calories of oil. That has specific biological effects that are negative on fat storage hormones and even on dopamine, even on addiction in the brain. And, you know, so let's just assume for a minute I was serving a big buffet and then there were two lines coming up to the buffet on the left side of the room. I gave them all a tablespoon of olive oil and they got to the buffet. Now, a tablespoon of olive oil is 120 calories. They wouldn't eat 120 calories less on the buffet because there's not a lot of fiber and nutrients and other things that's, that's, that reduce appetite. They would eat the same amount of calories. They'd eat 120 calories more if they gave them the tablespoon of oil as they were waiting in line to get there. But in the other line, I gave them an apple, a 65-calorie apple, and when the scientists tracked the exact amount of calories these people now consumed, they, can, they generally consumed 65 calories less. But now if I take the oil... And I, instead of giving them it to the tablespoon in the line before they got to the buffet, if I mixed it in with the food, they would not only eat an extra 120 calories, but the oil would drive overeating behavior. So they'd usually eat an extra 200 calories now from the extra 120 calories of oil. What I'm saying right now is oil, the average American consumes over 300 calories from oil a day, leading, and, and it's, it's a major factor in the extra weight they carry, and the extra weight they carry, you know, takes 15, 20 years off their life. Now, compare that biologically, a walnut oil to a walnut, or sesame oil to a sesame seed, or a pecan oil to a pecan. You see, when you, when you take the whole nut or seed, now we have the fat calories being absorbed into the bloodstream at approximately one to two calories a minute, 20 times slower. Not only that, but these sterols and stanols and fibers in the nuts and seeds have a fat, bind fat like a magnet so tightly that a percentage of those fat calories are sucked out into the toilet bowl. So you, and, and, and it actually sucks fat out of the bloodstream through the villi into the digestive tract. So you actually suck out saturated fat and LD, oxidized LDL preferentially. So you have more of the bad fats in the toilet when you eat the nuts and seeds. So a whole different biological phenomenon occurs here when you eat the food, the fat in a whole food form versus the processed food form from affecting the growth of the microbiome, from the fact that when you, fat is absorbed so slowly in the bloodstream, the body can preferentially burn those calories for energy as opposed to when it comes in rapidly, we have no choice, we have to store it as fat. Once the body's stored as fat, you're not preferentially burning that for energy. You're burning, glyc you're burning glycogen in the food. So, and then you don't even get into the fat stores until your glycogen is mostly, utilized, mostly used up anyway. So you're, you're storing fat and you're burning glycogen, you're storing fat, you're burning glucose and glycogen, you're storing fat, and you're not burning the fat off your body. You keep storing fat because you're taking in so much oil in your diet or so much of these, um, these rapidly digestible fats. The same thing happens when we take the sugar that's rapidly digestible, taking in honey, maple syrup, sweeteners, as opposed to the sugar that we consume or the carbohydrate we consume in berries or beans or parsnips, which come into the bloodstream more slowly. Even corn and peas have a significant amount of slowly digestible carbohydrates that come in the bloodstream 
much more slowly. And beans, of course, are the perfect example of foods whose calories enter the bloodstream so slowly over a three-hour period that you're almost absorbing about one calorie a minute instead of 100 calories a minute when you eat the sweets, and therefore you don't have to, the body doesn't have to screen a huge insulin response in, in, to absorb those, to, to utilize those nutrients. So any way you look at it, we're, we've gotten away from eating the food in its natural form. And when you don't eat a food into its most natural form, it changes the biology of that of food and how the body utilizes it. And when we combine oil and sugar together, and we combine oil and sugar and animal products together too, when you have concentrated animal protein, those three things work together to raise fat storage hormones, to be promote, you know, promote these angiogenic, angiogenic factors that make you store fat more readily and promote cellular replication, which actually promotes cancer and, and, and more inflammation. So it's, it's complicated, but it's a beautiful system the way the body has it designed to be so protected when we're eating foods in their natural form versus the processed form. We're talking about eating a wheat berry cooked in water or an, or piece of, or an oat berry cooked in water compared to grinding it in flour and baking it in an oven and with dry heat to form acrylamides and to increase the, rap, the rapidity in which those calories are absorbed. In other words, when we go back to the basic simple foods, it's, it's a completely different biological effects even in the same food. Do you... Um I just want to hang with oil a little bit. Do you have any recommendations for oil? Do you say people, I mean, I'm getting the gist that you get your oil, in the fat in the, the nut of the seed or wherever it comes from. Do you ever have a, uh, a time where you recommend a free oil like EPA or DHA or olive oil or you just uh, get the oil in the food? Well, I generally prefer people to get the oil in the food. I'm not so rigid that people can occasionally have something made with you know, with um, like going to the movies occasionally and you want to spray your popcorn with like a little bit of um, water mixed with olive oil and sprinkle some non-fortified nutritional yeast on top or something, an occasional treat. But, but the point that I wanted to make in response to your question is that um, two things essentially. Um, one is that we, when we have a little fat in our diet in the form of nuts and seeds, it increases the absorption of phytochemicals that fight cancer by almost tenfold. And so having a, a half an ounce to an ounce of nuts and seeds with a vegetable-based meal would mean dramatically enhanced phytochemical and anti-cancer effects of that meal, which, which is important. And the other thing we're talking about here um, with regard to oil um, yeah, is that besides the fact that it's... Um, rapidly absorbed is that when you heat oil and cook with it, it, go, it becomes rancid and that rancidity and those aldehydes formed by the heating of oil can also increase the carcinogenic effects of the oil. So I, I do recommend people not follow such a low-fat diet. They, they, I don't think that the fat content of the diet is so critical, whether it's 12% or 20% or 24%, if the fats come from a healthy source. However, I'm very concerned in my, you know, my practice for the last 30 years about vegans who are not supplementing with EPA or DHA, who don't have any, who are not eating fish or not having a, a vegan supplement of EPA or DHA even. I'm very concerned about the increased risk of depression that, they've, that they have a chance of developing and shrinkage of the brain that can occur in a percent of them because um, our studies showed that 
about a third of vegans develop deficiencies in EPA or DHA as they age when they don't supplement. And it's not dependent on the oil, the omega-6, omega-3 ratio of their diet. It's not dependent on their, you know, whether they have flax seeds and green vegetables or they restrict oils or how much walnuts they eat. And in other words, it's not just, it doesn't correlate well with their ALA or, or consumption, even though ALA is a precursor and the body can make some EPA and DHA, it correlates best with genetic differences in conversion enzyme. In other words, there's a wide genetic variability of people's ability to convert ALA into EPA and then DHA. And so much of the vegan community, especially these vegan gurus who are advocating people to go on low-fat diets and to restrict their fat and they tell them they don't need to take any of these um, protective oils for the brain, like DHA, are, are playing, are, are irris I'm saying that's irresponsible, and they're damaging people's future due to their um, philosophical bias. We can't take chances with people's lives, and there's too much evidence to show that there is a risk involved in a percentage of our population on a non-supplemented vegan diet. So if a person wants not to supplement and not to take the EPTA and DHA to protect the brain, then the least thing they should do is check a blood test to see if their omega-3 index is adequate to sustain brain health with aging because the studies show, if we look at all they tell that people who have an omega-3 index 3.5 or below have shrinkage of the brain as they get older, and especially shrinkage in the hippocampus, which affects your memory and thought processing. And the point I'm making right now is once your brain shrinks, you can't grow it back again and fix it later. So you can't say, oh, I'll see what happens as they get older. I'll see what happens. Because once you start to have brain shrinkage or that kind of damage, it's, um, it's not reversible. And look at all the people over, the, over my 30 years who are vegans who have become depressed, especially around, especially postpartum depression, and especially women who are sensitive to it, because major depression is a very, very serious illness that can be prevented against. So I'm, so I'm very, um, what's the word, strongly advocating people take care and be cautious with this and make sure they have a source of, of DHA in their diet. But that doesn't change the fact that I'm overall against people utilizing oils. Um, two questions. One, what is your source of EPA? Do you use the and DHA? You use the algae source, or do you care? Yes, I mean obviously the source is to have you know a lot of people who who utilize my approach and follow my, my um, advice are vegans and want to stay vegan, so they use the algae. And I do use you you know my, myself. I use the algae oil, um, but I but I have it manufactured. Um, for my clients and my family and myself, you know, I have it um, sent to us from in a on a refrigerated truck and in dark glass bottles, so we keep it fresher. Because when I've tested the um, vegan EPA and DHA out on the marketplace that most people are using, it has a high rancidity score. And I tell people if you're going to use what from the health food store and it's not refrigerated, then at least you should do is cut open the capsule with a serrated knife and taste it to make sure it doesn't taste vile or sour or rancid, because your oil should taste should have no flavor. It should essentially have taste normal, taste like taste flat. Shouldn't have a, a strong flavor like that. Shouldn't taste like gasoline. It started years ago when. I was recommending people take some EPA and DHA, and they would tell me they would have indigestion and burping, and you know they'd have a bad odor. So I started to, to test the oils for freshness, and I found most of what's out there in the marketplace, both the fish oil and the vegan oils, they both had a high rancidity scores because you're not really, you're not generally consuming it 
at a time frame close to the manufacturing point, and it could sit on a shelf of a of an in, in a warehouse or in a store for six to twelve months after it was um, manufactured. And over those months and months, it gets little, it gets rotten little by little. So I wanted to have an access to fresher oil. So that's where I really why I started actually getting making the oil available, just so I could have oil that was uh, an EPA and DHA source that was fresher and wasn't rotten. Let me ask you about um, the Mediterranean diet for a second here. So uh, frequently, you know, health professionals say, you know, eat the, the Mediterranean diet. <clears throat> and if you ask a, a person that walks in your office, you say, well, what strikes you about the Mediterranean diet? They'll say olive oil, fish, and wine. So about olive oil, how much, is that something that you just think comes along with a good plant-based core diet with the uh, Mediterranean diet, or it has actually properties of itself that's a benefit? Well, it all depends what you compare it to. In other words, walnuts have incredible benefits. They're a superfood. But in the PrevMed study, for example, they showed when people used olive oil instead of butter, there was about a, um, a 30% reduction in cardiovascular deaths switching from um, butter to olive oil. So if you look at that study, you'd think, well, olive oil is good because it reduces cardiovascular deaths by 30%. But I don't want to reduce cardiovascular deaths by 30%. I want to just by 100%. You know, so we don't want to, so just because the Mediterranean diet might be a little bit better than us pouring saturated fat and butter on our food doesn't make it good. In the PrevMed study, they tracked people instead of using olive oil who used nuts and seeds, used nuts, and they found that the additional protection from heart disease was an additional 60% drop in heart attack incidence over the fat, over the initial 15% drop or 20% drop from the from the olive oil consumption. So it's all comparative. So the olive oil might be better than butter, but then nuts and seeds are a lot better than that. And the Mediterranean countries are not free of heart attacks and cancers. Like there are countries around the world, like the Catawba study in the Catawba Islands that are free of, and as you know from the Blue Zones, there are people that are relatively free of cancers and heart disease, especially when we look at some of these areas of the world in, from the 1960s to from the 1940s to 1960s before we started exp um, exporting fast food and people start changing their diets. So the, what I'm saying right now is the Mediterranean diet and the Mediterranean countries shouldn't be held up as a gold standard of excellence because they still have a significantly high rate of heart disease and cancers. And the oil is one of the weakest part of the, cha the chain here. When you take the oil out and you put nuts and seeds in, you get tremendous additional benefits. And also the oil isn't quite as bad when you're working eight hours a day behind a heavy plow and oxen you know, burning calories all day long. Now people sit on their butt all day behind a computer and they have big wads of fat around their waist and they can't tolerate all that oil because they're not active enough to burn it off. And then the nuts and seeds are easier to burn off because it's harder to store the fat from nuts and seeds than it is from oil. It just makes a smarter decision all around. If I can speak to almost any nutritional scientist the world over, if they're unaffiliated with a food industry or something, and I'll say to them, well, let me ask you a question. Which is healthier, walnuts or walnut oil, sesame seeds or sesame oil, pistachio nuts or the pistachio oil? Every an olive or an olive oil, every nutritional scientist will recognize that the whole food with the fibers and sterols and phytochemicals and anthocyanins and bioflavonoids, everyone will recognize and the slow absorption of calories and less calories and the toilet bowl means less, you know, means less fat on you. And the more that they sustain you to make you feel more full and don't drive overeating, every nutritional scientist will recognize that using a whole food source of fat 
like the almond or a sunflower seed, is a much better choice than pouring oil over your food. There's really no controversy among the nutritional scientists. It's just what's marketed to the lay population. They're so confused. What is um, your limit on animal food, or, or uh, how, how do you incorporate animal food into your nutritarian approach? And meat, let's just say meat and fish, for example. Right. Well, first of all, you know, if the question is, like, once your diet is idealized for nutritional intake, you have all the nutrients you need in the right amounts, you have the, an excellent exposure to phytochemical and antioxidants, now the question is, which will promote lifespan the most? A little bit of animal products or on a strict vegan diet that's then appropriately supplemented with DHA and B12 and zinc or whatever you think it needs, you know? And the answer to that question, I don't know for certain, but I think that the evidence might suggest that a vegan diet might um, be even more lifespan promoting if it's, accurate, if it's appropriately supplemented. Because animal products start to raise IGF-1 in middle age, even when you go up to more 10% of calories to 10 to 15% range of having like one serving four ounces of animal products a day, one small serving a day still raises IGF-1 into an f- unfavorable range that reduces, that, and also you drive up more, more TMM, TMAO and more inflammate, cardiovascular inflammation. And some people genetically are sensitive to developing disease even with that lower rate of animal product consumption. But as you drop the animal product consumption you know, down to 8%, 7%, 6%, 5%, as we get down to like 6% and below, we're talking about you know, 6 to 8 ounces a week now, we start to see, we don't see those same risks. We don't see the inflammatory markers in the blood. The gut bacteria still looks favorable. You don't see IGF-1 driving so high. That could be, that could shorten lifespan. So I think there, you know, I think to be factual and to not to be dogmatic or, you know, to, allow, to just be a scientist, I have to say that we're, you know, that still could be a healthy option for people to use animal products in small amounts as a flavoring or a condiment. And I, I feel that in, that includes people. They don't have to feel I'm advocating strict veganism or the only way to be healthy is being on a vegan diet. And it allows people to be the nutritarian diet to be more inclusive and allow people to be included into the fold of the people who do want to eat a little animal products in their diet and not make them feel so guilty or drive them away from even considering eating a healthy diet because you can use animal products as a little bit of a flavoring and make a bean burger taste a little better by adding an ounce of animal product in there because it tastes like a meat burger then instead of a bean burger by just putting an ounce in there. So it, it gives some... Um, flexibility for me to be more inclusive to attract people to want to change their diet and not just look at it face value and say no way I'm not being a vegan forget it I'm not going to I'll just stay in the American diet so this way so what so am I, am I you kind of understand where I'm coming from mm-hmm. yeah all right so how about how about your g-bombs you know the end of the end of your book is very hopeful that we eat our way to health and I know that your g-bombs are part of that you want to explain what the g-bombs are Yes, because G-bombs, of course, G-B-O-M-B-S, are just an easy way for people to keep in the tip of their tongue and their memory those foods that have been demonstrated in scientific studies to offer increased protection against common cancers. So if we're going to try to live to be 100 years old in good health, we want to not get cancer. Right, so the so all plant foods are not have, do not have the same protection against cancer. 
a potato is not just as protective against breast cancer as a piece of broccoli. To think that is just ridiculous. You know what I mean? We know that the studies show that broccoli has pretended vaccines. We know this. Till, so the, the point I'm making is I want people to take modern nutritional science and be able to utilize it to maximally protect themselves, especially when you haven't eaten the most healthy diet for your whole life and you're going to switch to a diet later on in life. You want to remember those foods that are going to offer degree of protection because what I'm saying right now is those foods, the G-bombs, the greens, the colorful beans, onions, and scallions, Mushrooms, berries, and seeds, G-O-M-B-S, greens, beans, onions, mushrooms, berries, and seeds, those six foods, each one of them individually has been shown to offer dramatic protection against cancer. We're talking about, even for people who have cancer, by the way, it increases longevity and reduces recurrence. Like, for example, the study on flax seeds with people who already had breast cancer followed for 10 years, just having a little bit, just a third of a milligram a day, showed a 71% decreased risk of death from breast cancer over that 10-year period. It even works when you have cancer, but it works even more powerfully when you incorporate these foods in your diet before you get a diagnosis of cancer, and even, before, even more powerfully before you even have a cancer cell come in the body. They're even more powerfully protective. And so if I can get the population eating salads every day and putting onions on their salad or scallions and making soups with beans and, and, you know, and, 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 and cabbage and kale and bok choy in there, if we can get them eating you know, wild blueberries and flax seeds and chia seeds, when we incorporate these superfoods in the, into the dietary portfolio, it gives you enhanced protection against cancer, a longer life, and also protective against brain function. So I could just say briefly that the foods that show the most protection against cancer also show enhanced protection against dementia. And the foods that are show protection against cancer and increased protection against dementia also show enhanced viability and effectiveness in protecting against heart disease and reversing atherosclerosis and lowering blood pressure. So these foods are particularly rich in those phytochemicals humans are clamoring for, our immune system utilizes to maximize human function. So I have the G-bombs, just it's not the foundational principle, but at least directs people to try to remember those foods they should try to incorporate in their diet on a regular basis. I got two things and, and then I want to wrap it up. But one is dairy foods. I mean, you know, I, I take most people off dairy as soon as I can. But what is your opinion of dairy foods? Do you have ones you think are better than the others or do you just have people eliminate them? Or what do you think? I think it's easier just to eliminate them. You know, dairy products as a whole raise IGF-1 more than other animal products do. They're very addicting in the sense that, you know, ice cream and cheeses and yogurts are just people. It's very hard for people to not eat them, you know, not eat, overeat them and continue to eat them so much, you know, and melted cheese on pizza, whatever it is. So I don't know. I'd, I'd much prefer if people are going to eat a small amount of animal product that they eat some other type of wild or, you know, naturally raised animal product and not use dairy products. Or if they're do using dairy products, just shredding the tiniest drop of cheese, you know, a tiniest drop of Parmesan onto a salad where it's almost an insignificant amount, you know, where we're utilizing it as a you know, it's a really tiny, tiny bit. So I really would think getting off the dairy is very important. It's weight gaining, it's IGF-1 raising, and it's, it's definitely linked to breast cancer because we know that, the, and ovarian cancer for that matter, and we know that the populations with the highest amount of dairy consumption always have the most ovarian and, prost, and um, breast cancer too, and likely prostate cancer as well because of the effect on IGF-1. 
How about, um, I, I know in your past you've had experience with fasting uh, as part of your I don't know, medical treatment. And, you know, the fasting mimicking diet, um, Dr. Walter Longo, I've heard him speak, very intelligent guy. Um, do you incorporate uh, periods of fasting into your own personal regime or do you ever use that on patients? Yes, I definitely do. I have people with colitis and Crohn's that I fast, you know, three days a month. I have people with asthmatics that I'm fasting episodically to help clear the body of asthma so I can get them off their, their steroids. First, I get them off the beta agonists first while they're on the steroids, and I slowly reduce the steroids to a lower amount, and then through excellent nutrition, and I can usually fast them and use the fasting period to stop the inhalers because the fasting is such a powerful anti-inflammatory. To be a, um, It helps me with the the tools to help people make that extra progress to be able to get off medications and really clear their body from the asthma very often. So I've used it for lupus. I, so yes, I use fasting as a therapeutic tool, but I think your question is also referring to the fact that um, we try to have people not eat close to bedtime and, and sometimes go to bed a little hungry as a lifespan enhancing tool. So I myself will sometimes skip dinner and just have a glass of vegetable juice at night. And as I'm in bed relaxing from going to bed, watching TV or listening to music, I start to feel a little hungry maybe at night, 10 o'clock at night, but I'll just go to sleep anyway because it's a lifespan enhancing tool. So that's in a sense I'm almost utilizing fasting on myself episodically to go to bed hungry um, a few nights a week just to increase the body, the time in the catabolic phase where your body is enhanced cleaning and resting and repair and detoxification. So I, I do think there's value there. What I don't like about Professor Longo's advice, a few things, but one is that he's suggesting that a little fat on the body is beneficial as we age, and I'm saying he's got it mixed up. It's because it's not beneficial. It's, that's, it's, it's better to have extra muscle on your body as we age and extra bone mass and muscle mass, not extra fat. And that's, you know, so, um, and, and I, so, I, so I'm encouraging people to keep themselves, their women below 25% of calories from fat and the men below 15% and have good musculature. And, it's, and you can achieve good musculature on a nutritarian-style diet because it has sufficient protein to allow that to occur. And it's much healthier to um, be leaner the, the the data is skewed because because about 89% of Americans are overweight. Out of the 11%, because we're using the BMI of, of above 23 as being classified as overweight, the U.S. government uses a BMI of 25 and above. That's why they can classify only 70% of the Americans being overweight, and I'm saying 89%. But out of the 11% that are not overweight, 9% of those people have a medical condition that's causing them to be thinner, like they smoke cigarettes, they're alcoholics, they're depressed, they have occult cancers, they have digestive disorders, they have autoimmune conditions. They're, you know, so the, the 9 and 11% are in normal weight because there's some illness keeping them thin. So when you look at people in, as they're elderly and are in normal weight, you're skewing the population to identify a sickly population. It's only 2% of Americans are slim and muscular and as they age because they're eating right and exercising regularly. So I don't agree with Dr. Longo on that aspect. I don't think there's an advantage to putting the fat pounds and carrying an extra tire around your waist. And, and myself and my other elderly people who follow my advice, we have, we have six packs and we're ripped and we're muscular and we're fit and we're still running around playing sports in our 60s and 70s and 80s in great physical shape. And we're, not, and we're feeling the nutritarian diet enables us to have more youthful musculoskeletal system, maintain that muscle mass much better. And I'm not trying, so it's not, um, so there's a little difference of emphasis there. Okay. But you don't have any problem with periodic fasting. And when you say fasting, I, I get the evening 
you know, fast for 12 hours or 14 hours. How about um, when you fast these people for disease conditions, is it a water-only fast? Yes, I do both juice fasting and water fasting as well. I do utilize water-only fasting usually, you know, with people with digestive disorders, inflammatory bowel disease. We mentioned the asthmatic before. But so, yes, I, a lot of sometimes with people that have some serious medical condition, I can help um, facilitate their recovery by having them fast two to four days every single month. You know, I'll get them, I'll build them back, I'll slowly put them back on an elimination diet, I'll, and then the next month comes by, they've got their weight back, and I'll have them fast another three to four days, and I'll do it all over again. And, the re, the, and it does help facilitate a recovery, and so I can utilize that. You don't always have to do that, but there are some resistant cases that where just eating right isn't good enough or getting them well fast enough, where you can add fasting as a therapeutic tool to help get there quicker. All right. You got another book in the making, or are you going to rest for a while? <laughs> Six times. I do have, I think, 11 books now. I do have another book I'm starting on right now, um, but that's going to probably be my last book for a while. Um, so I'm just beginning, and it probably won't come out for a year or two, you know what I mean? But I'm, I'm, I'm trying to have, have a book that is very large, like an encyclopedic and compensating a lot, um, so people can, you know, uh, you know, go over the whole, the whole aspect, the full aspect of a nutritarian diet in kind of like my 12th book. And then I'm definitely going to take a break for a few years and not keep writing so much. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, well, this, the, <laughs> I'm six, I'll be 65, so I was 66. I'll be able to just slow down a little bit and spend more time skiing and playing tennis. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, this, I'm talking with Dr. Joel Furman, and I have his book, Fast Food Genocide. I highly recommend it. It's not only information and nutrient-dense, but it also challenges, I think it challenges our, our soul a little bit. You know, how we eat really does affect how people grow up and become who they are and um, and also makes it difficult for people to get out of certain places and positions in their life. I'm not saying they can't, but it just makes it difficult. So uh, I, I highly recommend that people read it. How do they get a hold of it and how do they get a hold of you, Dr. Furman? Well, my website is drfurman.com. I answer people's questions there. I have a member support system um, too, but obviously they can, you know, I think we... You know, we have books for sale on my website. I think some people paying extra there if they want them signed or something or autographed, but they can get it on Amazon, probably less expensive at a little at a better price even. You know, you know what I mean? Because they're the cheapest place to probably buy the book mm-hmm. is on Amazon. Okay. Well, I want to thank you again for taking your time on your Friday. I hope you have a great weekend, and I will talk to you soon. Thanks so much. Best of health. I want to thank you, the audience, for listening to this edition of the Staying Healthy Today show. And remember, I will have this posted at stayinghealthytoday.com, and I will also have this put up on YouTube as well. Talk to you soon.